Hello and welcome to the Not Boring Tech Writer, where in each episode we talk to the humans behind the docs, sharing stories, experience and expertise to inspire, entertain and give you knowledge and skills you can use in your life as a Not Boring Tech Writer. We'll be on to the interview in just a few moments, but I've got a few short announcements here at the top of the show. First of all, I want to apologise that this episode is somewhat later than normal. Um, back in mid-April, when I would normally have been preparing to release this episode, I had an unexpected medical issue which unfortunately landed me in hospital. Uh, I'm fine now, but the recovery did push this episode later than I would have liked to release it, so I'm sorry about that. In this episode, I'm talking to Danish tech writer Kat Stoika Ostenfeld. Her background is in linguistics and translation, so she has a really unique perspective on tech writing, and especially what she calls the diplomacy of documentation, so I really hope you enjoy the interview. There was a bit of a problem with Kat's recording, and the volume does come and go a bit. I've done my best to level it out, so I hope it's not too noticeable, but apologies for that in advance. One final thing, and I'll mention this again at the end of the episode, this is the, I think, third episode since Jacob left the show and I'd really like to hear how you the listeners are feeling about the changes that have happened and the direction we're going in. To that end I've put together a listener feedback survey and I'd love to get your opinions on what's good, what's not so good, what you'd like to see improved and any ideas you might have for the podcast in the future. It should take no longer than five minutes so you can access the survey at the top of the links in the episode description or you can head on over to the notboringtechwriter.com and click on survey right there in the top navigation and let me know what you think. Okay, that's quite enough for me. On with the show. Hello, Kat. How are you doing? Hi, I'm, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Um, can you remind me where you're calling from? I'm calling from Copenhagen in Denmark. Ah, now that's interesting. I visited Copenhagen like literally days before the pandemic started, um, but it's such a wonderful place. We had such a great time. Uh, how, how long have you lived there? So I'm from Denmark. Um, you won't be able to tell from my accent. Uh, so I've lived in Copenhagen for a total of, I want to say 10 years, 10 years, 12 years. The, the reason the math is difficult is because I moved abroad twice because I moved to the UK. So I've, I spent a semester studying in Bath and then I lived in the UK for a year and a half working as a translator um, a few years after that. So it, the math is, is, is hard. First, I spent a semester in Bath in the UK um, studying at the university there. And then I lived in Cambridge for a year and a half as a translator. It sounds like you pay. I'm also from the UK, as you can probably tell. I'm from Scotland, and um, <laughs> and um, you definitely picked some of the most beautiful places in England to to live. Bath and Cambridge. Yeah, I've been spoiled with some beautiful limestone buildings, really. <laughs> so, um, what's life like for you right now in Copenhagen? <laughs> um, that little laugh is because you were asking me uh, sometime in March 2021, which means it is a, a year into the pandemic. And so life for me right now in Copenhagen very consists of my own apartment because I've worked from home for a year now. I've been into a physical office four times in the past year. So I assume life for me is very similar to life for a lot of people right now. Huddling through and, and making your, your every 
everyday work life and your private life kind of mesh together. My spouse and I have a puppy. Oh. Uh, he's a golden retriever. Um, and oh. yes, you, you will have seen him in my fleet. Uh, I fleet him quite a lot. His name is Chewy after Chewbacca, uh, just oh. to give you kind of a sense of the level of nerddom in our household. Um, and he'll be seven months very soon. Um, so he's, he's keeping us busy and thankfully giving us a little break from being in the apartment and some routine. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, I can't recommend enough. Uh, all the listeners go over to Kat's Twitter, which we'll give at the end of this episode and you can see her beautiful puppy, (laughs) uh, Chewy. Um, I'm such an animal lover. I'm such a sucker for for cute animals. So when I saw him, I was like, oh my God, he looks so friendly. He is so friendly. It seemed like golden retrievers in general are friendly, but I swear he's the friendliest dog I've ever seen. He just loves, (laughs) he loves all people and all other animals. and, And it's like taking a walk with him you always have to factor in like double the time because he'll stop and say hello to every person he sees. Oh, but that's so cute though. He just wants to say hello and spread the love. He does. He's wonderful. <laughs> oh, gorgeous. Um, And so you didn't have the uh, the dubious luxury of working from home prior to the pandemic? You were working somewhere in-house? I was working somewhere in-house, yeah. Um, I, I I had the luxury of working from home one day a week. And so when we moved into the apartment that we live in now, we moved from a, from a tiny, tiny studio. So we moved into this gorgeous two-bed flat that we're in now where we very specifically had two desks in the extra bedroom to have a home office, both of us. And we looked at each other and went, this is a bit too narrow. It will never work if we have to work from <laughs> home at the same time, but that will never happen. And so... <laughs> And then COVID sneaked up in the background. Yeah. And so we've literally gotten into a, a, a rhythm where we every three months take turns to be the one that has the actual office. So uh, I'm in the actual office right now. I've kicked out my spouse. So I'm, I'm using his <laughs> headset. I'm using his office. He's in the living room with the puppy and has to deal with all of that while I'm talking to you because technically it's his turn to uh, to have an office to go to in order to, quote unquote, go to work. Sure. Well, I, I know that I and many of our listeners will appreciate his sacrifice. So thank you very much, Cat Spouse. <laughs> So I'm so interested to get into uh, your career as a tech writer. How did you make the decision to become a tech writer in the first place? Yeah, so uh, this is a question that you you told me you were going to ask. And I, I like preparing for this kind of question. And I just got stuck on the make a decision phrase because I never made a decision to become a technical writer. Um, well, that's very common for tech writers, actually. <laughs> it is, it is. But I actually started out as a translator. I'm a, I'm a linguist by credential. I have a master's in corporate linguistics uh, in English as a corporate language and in multicultural uh, corporate communications. And in my bachelor's, instead of the multicultural corporate communications I minored in European studies because I actually wanted to work in European embassies or I wanted to be a translator for the EU. I very didn't want to work deep in tech. I didn't see the reason for it. But then (laughs) while doing my master's degree, I got a student job for a Danish uh, software company that specialized in email software services. It's a newsletter software. And I was hired originally to just translate their website because they were doing a relaunch. Um, but that's a very finite um, 
position. That's a finite task. And so when, when, when there were no more words to translate, I was kind of on their payroll and we all liked each other. So I continued on there as like a jack of all trades communications person. And it wasn't until I years later became a technical writer that I realized that I was a technical writer because I was actually writing, I was writing the newsletters for the newsletter company. And I was explaining the features as we went along because there was a lot of features that weren't being used. And so I was utilizing the newsletter, funneling that to the users with instructions on what they could do. And then once I graduated my, my master's uh, and had to look for an adult job with adult wages and full-time working, I found this position in Cambridge uh, for a translation agency that I applied to. And because I had experience translating for this company, that was a software company, I got the job and turned out that that agency was specialized in software and in documentation, um, but also in linguistic quality assurance. So that was how I, I got to know about what QA work is um, and how that works in and of its own. And then I spent a year, year and a half, almost two years translating things. And for the first year, as I said, I didn't know what a technical writer is, but I kept getting this feeling that surely there must be someone that could have written this thing better because what I was being given as a translator was horrible. Um, <laughs> and I remember spending two months translating release notes. And I, as a massive nerd that is super into gaming and have been my entire life, I knew what a release note was and I knew that sometimes it was better than what I was translating now. And then eventually one of my, my colleagues in the agency left because they were going to go and be a technical writer. And I remember twisting my eyebrows and furrowing them and being like, I have no idea what this is, um, but <laughs> off you go. I wish I wish you all the best and every happiness. And then eventually things weren't, I wasn't really happy with being a translator because of reasons. And someone sent me a job description and said, this sounds like you. And it was a technical writer position. And so I applied to it and they were very, well, we know you can write because your job application, like it shines through, but are you sure that you can actually participate in production, in software production? And I went, I don't know, but like that's... <laughs> That's why this is an entry-level position, isn't it? Um, and so I, I, I got an entry-level position, and it was just it was just my niche. Like it's, I've never looked back. Uh, no, it, it was a bit like a jigsaw piece falling into place. Yeah. The only bit I looked back a bit was was then, you know, years later, during 2020, I was let go because of COVID. And so I had a few months where I was looking for jobs and... I was looking into like, maybe I should funnel away from being a technical writer. Maybe I should get into program management. Maybe I should be a localization program manager and I could kind of combine things. But I, it, the, the thing I'm realizing or realized is that I never looked away from software production because that's my niche. That's where mm. I love being. And I'm really happy I didn't get any further with the program management jobs that I, I was looking for because I love, <laughs> I love documentation. <laughs> Oh, that's great. I mean, you know, one of the main discourses in the industry is that you need to have that passion for technical writing. And some people come across it and they're just like, oh, this is me. Like, this is what I do. This is clearly what I'm meant to be doing. Mm -hmm. And it's such a great story to hear from people. It's You've had a really interesting journey by the sense of it. And I'm sitting here thinking that there's actually quite a lot of similarities between the two of us, because I also started as a linguist. Um, mm. I studied um, 
Japanese and Chinese studies at the University of Leeds. And I've sort of slinked sideways into communications, mostly in sort of the higher education setting. And from there into my current job, which is a lot more related to software. Um, so that's really interesting. I'm also a big gamer and I have been forever. So um, lots of stuff going on. So from those initial steps, how far have you come since then and where have you ended up? Um, I've had I've had some really interesting projects since then because I initially entered into a company that was in a situation that many IT companies can probably relate to, that it was founded at that time 17 years prior and it was very consultancy driven and very implementation driven. And then at some point someone had gone, we need to have an actual product which is 80% of what we do and then the consultancy work and the customization has to be 20% and then you have the internal struggles with how to actually make that come to fruition and you have a product department that has one mindset and you have a consultancy department and a customer success department that has another mindset and in the midst of all of that you have very many different definitions of what the word documentation means and mm. the technical writers probably don't agree with any of them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, lots of conflicting sort of ideas of what it should mean. Exactly. And lots of conflicting interests. There are different departments and stuff. Definitely heard that before. Been involved with that before, in fact. Exactly. Exactly. And and that was the company I joined into. And because I joined into it, like fresh off the bat of being a, a translator and only having been an external provider of a service, right? Like I've not had my fingers stuck in with actually working with product. So I kind of had this feeling of like, maybe it's just this particular company that, you know, doesn't have their stuff together. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I, I left that to join um, a company that in a, to a higher degree did have their stuff together. I worked with in Unity at a time in the game rendering engine. Oh, wow. Uh, where I was uh, the, the person charged with working with one of the graphics teams to document the beast formerly known as the lightweight render pipeline now known as the universal render pipeline which was amazing so i worked with the product team i was originally hired into the product team reporting to the same lead developer as the developers were that was an amazing experience um did you get to see any like um advanced sneak peeks of games coming up or anything like that or was it not mm, that kind of thing if i did i wouldn't be allowed to say oh, of course of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um but i i want to say working at unity was amazing it was amazing that i could walk down the hall and i would see someone put on a vr headset and like flail their arms about and i would know that they were actually doing work Oh, that's so cool. I love that. <laughs> yeah, that was really cool. And, and at Unity, I actually I experienced two kinds of how to be in a documentation team as well. Um, because I, you know, originally was hired in as a contractor to be in the feature team. And then eventually I was centralized into being in the documentation team that worked in a different manner. And so mm. I was closer to the to the docs team, but I felt further away from the actual product and the, and the feature team and the developers. And then after Unity, I went back into enterprise software and I started in a Danish company that had been acquired by an Australian company um, that right. was a hyper growth company. So when I was interviewing with them, it was the end of 2019 and you know I signed a contract to start January 2020. And on my third day, the person who had hired me said, 
the organizational chart is about to change and we have no idea where to put you. So we're thinking of putting you under the head of QA because that seems like the discipline that would be most intuitively sympathetic to yours. And I cockily said, I understand why you and two other developers got to that conclusion, but here's why I think you're wrong. And if it's all in the air anyway, I think that documentation should be equal to product management and design and QA and development. So it should be its own separate pillar. And I suggest that I lead it. And so his eyes went wide and he went, okay, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll talk to my boss. And then the next day, there was an email from him that said, uh, my boss and I agree that you should talk to my boss. And so when I'd been there for only a few weeks, I was in, I was corresponding with the head of product wow. saying, like, I think we need to establish documentation as its own discipline. And I've had a two hour meeting with him that started with the sentence, who are you? Uh, and, and, and end it with, okay, so we're now in agreement that I now report to you and documentation gets to be its own discipline. And he went, yep, if you want to come in and do that, you seem completely capable. So please come in and do that. So I had a very interesting start of 2020 where, you know, all of February and first half of March was very about getting to know the development leads from seven different development teams in three, four different companies sussing out what they'd done for documentation, trying to, to establish a documentation pipeline that could work across all of these and that they could all plug into while also doing the documentation for the company that I was originally hired into. Those were some intense weeks. I didn't socialize as much as I normally would, um, but I learned a lot. Um, well, you had a lot to do. <laughs> I had a lot to do and it was so fun. It was so, so fun. And I, I, I got to have a lot of discussions with other people and actually, you know, really find my own passion as well. And then this wee pandemic hit and the company had to let go of some people, uh, me included. So I looked for other jobs within software production where we could use my organizational skills and my diplomatic skills. And then I also found this job description for where I currently am which I applied to. And uh, the day I had my first interview was also the day I had my second interview, which was also the day that I had my job offer. Um, so oh, that's, a, that's a very busy day. <laughs> it's a very busy day. And then, um, yeah, that's where I've been since. So I'm, I am now an on the ground technical writer. I don't have a fancy head title. I'm not a team lead or anything, but I am still incredibly passionate and very aware of why I'm passionate about it. That is quite an amazing journey. And I have to applaud you for talking so directly to your employer about tech writing deserving its own sort of pillar. I think that's really great. And I've heard a lot of stories of tech writers in the field who are quite sort of hesitant to be that direct about it. Did it feel like a risk when you were talking to them like that? A risk, yeah. But it also felt like I was in a unique situation where I'd spent my first few days trying to find my people across these different companies. So I'd, I'd yeah. done my due diligence of, of researching and what does documentation actually mean to you all and what are the workflows that I can plug into. And because I'd been quite cocky in my job interview with the person I was sat in front when I said it the first time, but I can be quite cocky. I don't know if you can tell just from the, the, the 25 minutes we've, we've spoken to each other, but when I, when I feel confident, I, it's like I have a tiny little devil inside of me. I, I, can, I can smirk quite heavily. Um, and so because I felt confident with him and also because it's an actual like cardinal point for me, I genuinely believe 
believe that in order for documentation to be able to thrive and provide the service that it's supposed to provide, it has to be its own pillar. Sure. I had this feeling of like, you don't know what you don't know, but I know what you don't know. And you particularly hired me because I know what you don't know. So I'm just going to speak one of those hard truths right now. And it was, it was, it was received well. It was fun. It was good. It was also hard because you know, I kept running into a lot of the people not knowing what they don't know. So there was a lot of negotiation. There was a lot of dialing myself back in order to kind of tease out from the other person what they wanted from documentation. So instead of just coming in and saying, this is why we should do all the things in this and this way, because I am the one that knows, it was a matter of coming in and saying like, what do you want documentation to do? What are the issues that you see now? And that was quite an an interesting um, diplomatic exercise. So um, before we started this recording, you were telling me about how you were supposed to give a talk at Write the Docs. Which Write the Docs was it you were going to attend? Uh, I was going to attend the 2019 one in Prague. I was going to give a talk that was called How I Use Applied Linguistics to Be a Better Technical Writer. Yes, you were telling me about that. I'm really interested to find out what that's about. Could you tell us a bit about what you were going to present there? Yeah, so I was going to share findings from my bachelor's thesis that I co-wrote with someone else and my master's thesis. So my bachelor's thesis is named Why Using English as a Corporate Language is Not an End-All Solution to Communicative Issues in Global Small to Medium Enterprises. Right. There's a sexy title for you. Um, Oh, very much so. (laughs) And then my master's thesis is called There are those that speak English very well and those that just speak it very much a qualitative (laughs) study in how it affects technically administrative personnel at Copenhagen Business School to have English as a corporate language. Oh, that's a very long, sexy title, that one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So how did did these two things come together to form the presentation you were going to make at Write the Docs? So we were focusing about corporate language and people having to navigate in working together when speaking a corporate language that's not necessarily their own native language. And so there are quite a few findings in there, some of the most important ones being that your proficiency in the shared language does not matter if you share a context. But there are also some secondary findings that were relevant, like people have a tendency uh, when it comes to national cultures to want to talk to people that are of a perceived like-mindedness. Um, right. So uh, specifically in that thesis, what we found was, you know, the Scandinavians tend to clump together, the North Europeans tend to clump together, the Southern Europeans tend to clump together, the native English speakers tend to clump together because they assume that they all understand each other better and that they'll be able to work together. I I found in an academic way, while writing these two theses and being very interested in, in, in that aspect, since being embedded in product teams, I've seen that they actually apply in a double capacity in development teams in, in and in software companies, because you both have a large presence of different nationalities. I don't know in Australia, I don't know in the US if, if it's as predominant there but in Europe in European based offices or companies you have people from all over the world working together in these software companies so sure, at my yeah. at my current place I have two different feature teams one is predominantly Polish and Ukrainian and then we have two Danes that are attached to it uh, in the other one 
the team is based in Copenhagen. We have two Danes attached to it, but then we also have predominantly Ukrainian and Indian and an American and someone from Singapore. So that is a lot of national languages and a lot of nationalities working together. Yeah, it's quite the melting pot. Yeah, exactly. That all have to work together in English as a corporate language, despite different levels of, of proficiency in English just as a spoken language. But also what I've also found is in software production, the mindset of your background affecting how you think and how you connotate your words is also really predominant because you have a back-end developer, you have a front-end developer, you have a UX designer, you have a technical writer, you have a QA person, you have a program manager, you have a product manager, you have a marketing person, and they're all focused on different things and they all have different meanings when they say the same words. So my talk was about how you could take some of these linguistic findings and then actually project them onto working in feature teams and then have a few practical suggestions for how to actually navigate that, especially as a technical writer. I see. That, that's so interesting. And the linguist in me is like squeeing right now because <laughs> I love it's. It's so interesting how this all kind of intersects and people think they're talking about the same thing and they're not, or they think that they're not going to be talking about the same thing when they actually are. And yeah. that's that's really interesting to me. So so what does that look like in practice? Like, are there, Can you give me any scenarios that would demonstrate what you mean here? Well, so I can lean on, on one of the articles I wrote for Medium because um, a thing that I've also mentioned throughout our little conversation here is the meaning of the word documentation, which means so many different things to different people, right? So to a developer, it will usually mean the slash slash comment that they make in the code, right? Or it will mean uh, a description in an API, a description for the method or for the call. Um, to a consultant, it will usually mean implementation documentation documentation so you know what did we actually do in this particular case for this particular client in their on-prem setup to a customer success manager it might mean like what are all the different issues to a marketing person it might mean well what can the thing do and to a technical writer it means all of those things plus the instruction on how to use it and the concept of what it is and the reference to where to go and see more so I have quite often in all of the companies I've worked in as a technical writer had to stand there and go like, are we sure we're actually talking about the same thing? Because yeah, when you sure. say that you're documenting it, what do you actually mean? Yes. Yeah. It's so fascinating. These, these differences that we have in, in perception of, of different ideas. So as a tech writer, why do you think it's useful to have a linguistics background? Can you use that to overcome these issues, do you think? Yeah, I've quite frequently relied on my learned ability to pull myself out of my own understanding of a thing and then go, I need to see your understanding of the thing and I need to see their understanding on the, of the thing. Because that's what I, I did for five years at uni, um, mm. was have so many different classes that were about the perception of the communication and how it's the recipient of the message that determines whether or not the message has been successful. And it's the job of the person conveying knowledge to convey it in a manner that the recipient will deem successful. And so I think that that having that, I don't know if it's a skill or if it's a mindset, has has made me able to navigate the what I call the diplomacy of being a technical writer 
truthfully, I wouldn't be able to say if other people wouldn't be able to do it because I only have my own background. But I, I think that having that linguistic perception does sometimes relieve some of the frustration that I've seen some of my colleagues have because just between two technical writers and an entire audience of technical writers that will also listen to this podcast we're frequently in an undervalued position we're we're in a role where we have to be the bringers of mirth in order to fuel the mirth because quite frequently documentation and what we do is at the end of everyone's priority list Otherwise, you wouldn't have been able to talk to so many different people saying it would be nice if, it, we, if we were actually elevated in the system in order to be able to do our jobs better. And so I, I frequently have seen technical writing colleagues be bogged down by that aspect, by the always being an afterthought, by always just being handed something that is not usable <laughs> uh, being, <laughs> being handed document I was trying to, to say that diplomatically but but uh, words failed me um but you know the, the, I, I think everyone can relate to the situation of you've been waiting for the document for it and you've been you've, you've asked for it you've asked for it you've asked for it you, it's finally given to you and it's in a manner where you're just like I could have I could have done this myself if I just had access to to a demo environment I could like what even is this and so that can be quite <laughs> that can be quite frustrating for a person perpetually being in that situation. And I think whenever I, I have those periods, I'm able to tell myself, oh, it's a manner of understanding. It's a manner of mindset. It's a manner of the fact that they don't understand and they don't know that they don't understand what I need in order to tell the users what they need to know. I think you're really bringing a voice to a struggle that a lot of tech writers come across, even if they're not quite aware of why it happens. I know that I've certainly been in situations like this. You said something about a minute ago that you said you've got to bring the mirth to feel the mirth. And uh, I think we'll just find our episode title, to be totally honest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So Kat, um, your Twitter bio says that being a tech writer equals being a diplomat in tech. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, so I think as a technical writer, you're constantly in a position where you need things from other people, things that they don't necessarily want to give or know how to give, or if you're really unlucky, it's a combination of the two. And so you have to constantly pester someone else. I you know it's not the right <laughs> word to use, but it's the right word to use, uh, while maintaining a level of rapport with them. Because it's never the final time that you need something from them. You're going to need something from these subject matter experts over and over and over and over again. And that is just in the technical writer to subject matter expert relation. But then you also have working with UX, for example, quite a few technical writers are actually also UX writers. So in my current position, I also own all UI labels and so on. So suddenly I also have to collaborate with UX designers and contribute to what they're doing while maintaining my own professional responsibilities. And sometimes those can be fictitious relations because if I'm focusing so much on what the word should be, but they're focusing on how wide the button should be, then we have an issue potentially. And so mm. we have to continuously 
work together and maintain, as I said, a rapport. And you can add with every single different role that you're collaborating with, right? Because as you're collaborating with QA and you want to maybe have them actually test your documentation or maybe contribute to something as they're finding things. Um, But you also have to jot into them having a production workflow with product backlog items and tasks and JIRA tickets and so on, in which you frequently don't actually figure in a way that is normal to how they collaborate to each other. So you're in a role where you're constantly, as I said, pestering other people, potentially causing them to context switch, which is, you know, the worst thing in the world for experts to have to do, uh, back into (laughs) something that they haven't done for a long time, while continuously asking for them to focus on you more and more and give you more and more of what you need while also educating them in what you need. And that is, like, I don't know what it is if it's not diplomacy. I think it is diplomacy and it's also sort of relationship building as well. As you say, you may need that person's help in the future. So you kind of need to keep up that relationship. I know that I've been in situations where I've been working with developers and uh, there's a bit of hesitancy on their part to work with someone whose job is to write about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure where that comes from, but it can be difficult to navigate sometimes. Mm-hmm, exactly. And there's also the situation of you can't treat every subject matter expert like they're all the same, right? Because people are people and you you want to be seen and valued as the individual that you are. Absolutely. Which I also think is a part of diplomacy. Just like, you know, I don't want to be assumed to be the same as all of my technical writing colleagues not because I don't respect them I do they're really nice really good at what they do but I work in a different manner and so I I don't want to be assumed to just work in a certain way because I have a certain title and I should be mindful to not make the same assumptions of the people that I work with totally but that's the value of this diplomacy is helping the other person to understand what it is you do and that you're not a threat I guess, in a way. Yeah, it's it's I when when you and I were talking about uh, me coming on to do this episode, I I used the phrase full stack team because that's that's one of my um, keen interests. Um, it's what I I, I learned in the time where I I was a member of a full stack team at Unity when I was I was reporting to the actual team lead of the feature team, and it's what I was messaging in my job afterwards when I wanted documentation and technical writing to be its own pillar and product, and it's what I, I've, I've kind of worked with my two feature teams in my current company to try and get into a rhythm of being is that I'm a member of the product team and I can be a member of the product team to to many degrees. Like I can actually, you know, depending on whether or not you're using XML-based documentation or Markdown-based documentation, you can even be in the same repository as the actual developers and doing your work alongside them. I can be in your pull requests. You don't have to write me on Teams or on Slack in order to have me go over a UI label. I can do that in the actual PR. So if you include me in your planning, if you include me in your meetings, if you include me before the demos, but actually in the scoping, in the refinement and so on, and let me do my discovery at the same time as the developers and the QAs and so on have to do theirs, then I can contribute as a full stack member to the product and not just as this afterthought. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's the wearing of hats. That's certainly what we call it at our company. It's, it's the switching of hats and, and knowing that you have a whole hat stand full of hats. That, But I think that other people in other areas of the business might not always appreciate that. But I think that's mm-hmm. where the diplomacy comes in, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good that's a good phrase. The wearing of hats. Yeah, it's lots of different hats to wear. Yeah. Um. So when you're actually undertaking the work of writing technical documentation, what are you passionate about? In, in that actual work? <laughs> I think it's probably not going to be uh, that big of a surprise when I say that I'm the least passionate about the actual writing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I get frustrated when I have to write. I love having the meetings. I love writing the notes. I, I have so many notebooks. I, I love doing all of the discovery work, but then also I'm such a perfectionist that when it comes to the time where I have to create an actual topic and start writing, I get I get actual physical rage filling my body <laughs> my, I think that's my, fair I think that happens to all of us sometimes yeah, yeah my partner and I've been together for nine years now and he can tell like he can <laughs> he can tell where I am in in the phase of like going from discovery onto having to write onto having to edit what I've written he can tell when I'm on that like middle hump because I just like I prowl around the apartment like a caged animal <laughs> I'm like I'm just I'm rearing for a fight really um uh, <laughs> but uh, it's like a it's like a volcano about to erupt you can see the smoke coming out the top <sighs> and then there's a rumbling underfoot and then the explosion <laughs> exactly 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 that yes i feel so seen and heard right now um, <laughs> um exactly that but i i like the two bits on either end right i love the discovery part like i love the part mm. where pms are talking about a new feature the developers are kind of you can see the thing where subject matter experts are experting and they're going like okay but then we need this and this and this and this and if you actually have a meeting where people that are really into a particular area start doing the discovery real time and pinging with each other it's beautiful like that's oh i live for that i live for those moments Mm. where you have these actual experts that respect each other and know that you're like no you need to let anton do his thing because he's going to come back in an hour and he's going to have solved seven things that we didn't think of because this is <laughs> yeah. his area, right? I love those meetings and I love being part of them myself. Like I love just starting jotting down on one of my many notebooks or, or post-its or whatever of like, okay, and then we need this, 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 and this. And so that by the time they get to, well, what about documentation? I can go, well, the way I see it, we need three new topics and we need to make changes to these seven topics. And by the way, this, this, and this. Like it's it's that, that aspect, as you can tell by the passion in my voice right now, I love. It's your favorite hat. It's my favorite hat yeah and then (laughs) i also love on the other side of when those x amount of new topics are done and i'm sending them to the editors by the way editors are a godsend and everyone should love their editors and if you don't have editors in your documentation team i feel really sorry for you go and get some but i love the part as well where i get feedback from the editors that can be like a, a thing that's a bit touchy because you know for as for a writer it can quite feel like you've spent all that energy and you've been the you've been the caged animal and you've gone through the thing and you've you've tortured yourself with actually doing the writing and then you send it to an editor and then they find so many faults with what you did yeah. <laughs> um, that that can be quite challenging. But uh, but I relish in it because then it's like it's no longer my thing. Like this is now the product, and the editor looks at the product and goes, "Hold on, what about this, 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 and this?" And then they make it sing. And I love that bit as well because 
collaborating like first of all it's like oh I know that what we're releasing into the world is really good and I know that it's it's not just the child of my mind and two subject matter experts it's actually something that is human readable uh, and makes sense to a person (laughs) who's not as deep into the subject matter as we are and then also I learn things like I can tell I improve as a writer whenever an editor actually takes their time to go you need to do this, this, and this, or what about this, this, and this? Like I can tell that it becomes easier and easier for me to not deliver the same error every time. Definitely. It's that element of collaboration that really pulls it together and makes it into the final product. So Kat, tell me, are you a member of any tech writing communities? You know, you mentioned to me that you noted that we always ask our uh, <laughs> our guests on the podcast about communities. So um, are you a member of any communities, either online or in the before times offline and how do you feel about the tech writing community at large yeah so i am a very proud member of write the docs it's one of my favorite newsletters so yeah i think the write the docs community is amazing um i i have the uh, slack channel on my work computer so that i can ask questions in there as I said, I was supposed to give a talk in 2019. I didn't because a personal crisis came up literally the day before I was supposed to fly. So I had to write the oh. my, my contact person and go like, I'm really sorry, but... That's um, a shame. Yeah. Um, and they were really good about it and told me that I could reapply to to give the talk at some point. But I good. did you attend... You weren't blacklisted. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. Um, <laughs> I did attend the, the, the year before and found it amazing. I'd really suggest to people to go to something especially like write the docs because it's not just documentarians it's anyone who's interested in docs and what docs can do and the talks are so varied and and i remember when i went to the 2018 one there was a developer there who was live tweeting who captured a moment that had happened in in the room like because we were all sat in this gorgeous room in prague in an old automobile club and there were these beautiful red velvet curtains everywhere and and it was a really weird atmosphere um but good <laughs> and someone had said something someone who, who were giving a talk about teaching geeks to fish was the name of the talk and she was saying right. like she, she was a technical writer who did not have like she worked in a massive company she did not have time to do the documentation for every feature team so how she was spending her time instead was teaching technical writing to the developers And it was amazing. And there was a moment where she said something and every actual technical writer in the room just went. (gasps) (sighs) (laughs) And so this person wrote on Twitter of like, I've just experienced a room full of people having a reaction because they share vocabulary. And that is powerful. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. And that was was really good. That's amazing. What What a unifying moment. Exactly, exactly. And so during 2020, I've, I've participated in some of the online meetups for Write the Docs. They're really good at doing local editions as well, as opposed to, to the big national conferences or international conferences. I'm also, I'm not a member, but I participate in events hosted by Techom, which is a German-based European technical communications network. And then I used to also be part of a MacApp Flare user group. The point I should make to your users is there are several communities and you should definitely join into them because as we've, we've spoken to before, like being a technical writer can feel lonely. And one of the secret weapons for bringing the MRF in order to feel the MRF is to ping pong with your peers. And sometimes you just have to find those in a community. 
And Write the Docs is particularly good for that. Definitely. And I can relate to the point about tech writers sometimes feeling sort of like they're on their own. Mm -hmm. um, and going, going to one of these events really makes you understand that there is a whole community there. As you say, the Slack channel is, is fantastic. And it, it, I think it can really bring people who feel like they're in a little bubble by themselves, especially these days, together to feel like they're, they're part of a family. And yeah. I think that's really special. Yeah, exactly. I gave a talk a little, little less than a year ago to one of the online meetups for Write the Docs Sweden. And I gave a talk about being a lone technical writer. And it was amazing. Well, not necessarily my talk. My talk was adequate, but it was amazing to have this, <laughs> uh, to have this meetup and be heard and also feel like I was contributing to other people feeling heard and seen. And so that would be like a, a huge recommendation is to allow your yourself the calm and support that it is to, to know you have an entire international community that is willing to have your back and you all you have to do is just reach out absolutely and it really is worldwide now the most recent one that i attended was the online conference for write the docs australia and india which had to switch to virtual quite at the last minute and uh, it was a great translation of what had happened in the real in the real space that's not how you say that um you know in, 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 in the, the meat physical space. world yeah. <laughs> yeah um into the virtual and it, it was great it was really great so we're coming up on the end of our time here, but I wanted to ask you, based on your personal journey in tech writing, which has been very varied, is there any advice or insight you'd give to our listeners who might want to follow a similar path or just want to get into tech writing generally? So I want to say that everyone can make it into tech writing, really. Uh, my current boss uh, has a PhD in microbiology. <laughs> so um, I tried asking once like how they got into doing what they're doing now. And it was very similar to me of like they saw a job description and someone else said you could do that. And then they applied and they got the job and they never looked back. And I've worked with quite a few different people that had very varied backgrounds. So it's, it's, it's not a very gate kept position, to be honest. What you have to have is, I think, that passion for what you and I are talking about when it comes to diplomacy. You have to yeah. like the de linguistic detective work, is what I call it, of figuring out, like, what did that person mean? What should it actually say? And what does that person need for it to say in order to understand? And so those are linguistic puzzles, and that requires for you to be a diplomat and go out and, and ask for the different things. You also have to be a detective, because sometimes, no matter how many times you ask and how many different ways you ask, you won't get what you actually need. And so you'll have to go and do the work yourself and go into a demo environment, go click through the program and try and figure it out yourself. And you also have to do a fair bit of bread and butter sanity checking and smoke testing of whether or not things you've already written have since changed because someone else has changed something in the actual product without letting you know. And you have to not let that get to you, but just let it be part of your everyday routine. And if you think that sounds like you, it probably is you. Now, I don't know necessarily how to go from that realization into getting an actual technical writing job, but I want to say keep an eye open for entry-level jobs and be honest about not necessarily having the direct experience, but also be honest with how what you've done before can translate into it. Because all of the technical aspects of technical writing, you can learn. Like lean writing, you can learn. Sentence structures, you can learn. All of the things that we could also have had a one-hour conversation about, you can learn on the job. But the thing that you really need in order to succeed is the passion 
And I believe in a world where if you sit at a job interview or even just write in a job application that you don't necessarily have the quote unquote experience, but you have the passion and here's why you think you can do it. The person sat on the other end likely had the same journey as you did. So, so likely they'll go, "Eh, I can see that and then give you a chance. That's my genuine belief and my hope for anyone who wants to go down that path. Absolutely. I think that was a really great answer. And I think it will give a lot of hope to our budding baby tech writers out there who are just sort of starting out and wanting to get into the industry. So thank you very much for that. Yeah. And also just remember, like, if you've picked up what I said with regards to uh, how long I've been a tech writer, I've only been a tech writer for five years. You can get really far and get a lot of experience in a very short amount of time. But it's a matter of really analyzing your experiences as you go along and then re shaping them into what you need so where can people find you online if they want to find out more about you or if they want to get in touch where can they find you yeah so as you mentioned i'm on twitter my handle is at catstodian underscore or they can try and find me by just searching for my name, which is Kat Stoiker Ostenfeld. There's a bit of an international name for you. I tweet both in Danish and English, so please do be there for my technical writing tweets. But also just know that I'm part of Danish Yarn Twitter, and I tweet about my dog quite a lot, and I tweet about mental health, and a lot of it is in Danish, so you'll have to use the built-in translation quite a lot. I am also semi-active in in technical writing Twitter, which is a thing. There's a technical writing Twitter and it's amazing. That's how you and I got to know each other. Yes. Yeah. And I have a few articles on Medium. I have one about false friends in your organization, which is a linguistic terminology and translation where I describe, as I said earlier, why documentation or the fact that documentation is a false friend because it means different things to different people. And I have another article about code switching and how that's actually um, an issue in, in international teams. I have a few articles in my mind that are my current brain children that will probably land on Medium at some point over this next year. Um, and other than that, I'm on LinkedIn. But yes, very, if you want to interact with me, uh, Twitter is very the, the place. Uh, LinkedIn is semi the place. And if you want to just read my brain children, then you can search for my name and find me on Medium. Fantastic. Well, Kat, thank you so much for coming to speak to me today. It's been so much fun and really interesting your um, experiences and your journey to where you are now. And also, definitely, there's a lot of um, parallels between my own journey and interests and yours. So it's been really great. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. I, I really would love to have another conversation with you and just hear all of your parallels because you get to hear so much about interesting people. But then you only like, there are only a few little tidbits it's about your journey so I think we all need an episode where someone interviews you <laughs> well, that, that's very flattering but um, in, in the episode since I took over the show I have been drip feeding interesting little tidbits so if you're a detective like Kat if you're a linguistic detective you can go in there and find all the little tidbits and put it all together stitch it together into the full picture um, that's not true I'm obviously making that up <laughs> But if you do it, make a super cut so the rest of us can hear it as well, because I don't have the discipline to go through and do that myself. And then it will all make sense to everyone. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Kat. Take care now. Thank you.
thanks for listening to this episode of the Not Boring Tech Writer. Just a few notes here at the end of the show, it would be so wonderful if you could fill out the feedback survey I mentioned at the top of the show. It takes no more than five minutes and it will honestly really help me to improve the podcast and make sure I'm giving you what you want to hear. So you can access the survey at the top of the links in the episode description or you can head on over to the notboringtechwriter.com and click on survey in the top navigation. If you want to join in the conversation or if you'd like to discuss being a guest on the podcast, get in touch. We're on Twitter at NotBoringTech, or there's a contact form on our website. Just go to thenotboringtechwriter.com and click on contact. Thanks very much again to Kat Stoika Ostenfeld for being a fantastic guest on the show. There are links for how to get in touch with her and other interesting links in the episode description. Until next time, I'm Gerard Doran, and you are the Not Boring Tech Writer.